This is Anabaptist Perspectives. I'm here at Faith Builders in Pennsylvania with Kyle Stalsfus, which you happen to be my brother-in-law, which works nicely. You're working on a master's degree in church history um, and theology, that kind of thing. And something you've been pretty interested in from our conversations is something called the theology of martyrdom. Mm -hmm. Can you just define that and describe what what you mean when you say that? Mm Yeah. So theology of martyrdom takes really seriously what we say when we mean that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. And, And what we mean by the treasures of wisdom in Christ is that in his, in Christ's self-emptying life, in his innocent death, and in his vindicating resurrection, we know what wisdom looks like, and it looks mm-hmm. like that. So Christ is the expression of wisdom. He tells us everything we need to know about God, everything we need to know about man, and it looks like that self-emptying arc of his life. So what do I mean? Like This, this is kind of the, the theological side of it. What do I mean by a theology of martyrdom? The first thing that that we have to mean by that is Jesus Christ's identification with us as human beings. So I mean that that Jesus Christ, in in the whole span of his life, he demonstrates solidarity with human beings because he's he's God and he's human and he demonstrates his, his solidarity with us. He's with us. He's God with us. And it's this reality the reality of God in Christ appearing on the scene of, of human history mm-hmm. that, that, that captivates the first believers. It's, it's hard to make sense of, it's hard to get their minds around, but it absolutely captivates them. Um, but there's more to that, and, and here's where it gets really interesting and starts to merge into what I mean by a theology of martyrdom. It's that the, not only does God appear on the scene of human history in the form mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ, but he comes in a certain way. There's, mm-hmm. there's a form to it, and uh, there's a trajectory or a manner of God's revelation. And in that trajectory, that manner is this. It's he comes in a self-emptying manner that ultimately leads to his death. And that's the form of God's revelation. So we, we find Paul grappling with that revelation in Philippians 2. It's one of the, uh, one of the earliest Philippians is one of the earliest books that we have in the New Testament. And in this passage in Philippians 2, it's, it's becoming one of my favorites. Uh, it's central to what it means. And, and Pierre Paul writes, he writes, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted and bestowed him and given him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So, I mean, you you notice in that two basic movements. There's the movement downward and then there's the movement upward. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where first Christ is emptying himself, he's humbled, he's crucified, one of the most humiliating and agonizing deaths possible, and then the Father exalts him. 
Mm -hmm. The downward and then there's the upward. And, and someday it's this pattern that is going to be demonstrated to be simply the way the world operates mm -hmm. at some fundamental level, okay? So there was great cost to Christ taking on the form of a servant, mm -hmm. and it led to his abandonment, it led to his crucifixion. Um, but all of that was, was validated, it was, it was vindicated with the resurrection. Mm -hmm. So when, I, when I'm talking about a, a, a theology of uh, martyrdom, it, a theology of martyrdom or martyrdom in general is just in its barest form giving witness to mm -hmm. Christ's solidarity with us and to its form. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's the first part of a theology of martyrdom. It starts with Christ, and it starts with Christ's identification or solidarity with us as human beings. Mm -hmm. It originates there, and it flows then from our participation in the life of Christ. Okay? Mm -hmm. And I, I could take as my jumping-off point to kind of describe how that flowing out of the life of works, this curious little passage mm -hmm. uh, in Paul, in, in Colossians, in Colossians 1.24, Paul writes, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, meaning the, the church at Colossae, suffering for the church at Colossae, and he rejoices mm -hmm. in that, and I will fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So he says, the, the interesting part about this is that he is, um, he's, filling up in his flesh, Paul's flesh, what is mm -hmm. lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. And, and you just have to ask, so what, what's he trying to accomplish here? Is he trying to crucify mm -hmm. Christ again? And well, obviously not. I think, I think what you can say about that passage is there's, there's an open-endedness mm -hmm. to the story and to the sufferings of Christ. Mm -hmm. Okay, It originates in Christ, but there's an open-endedness to it. And the gospel that's presented by Paul in Philippians 2, the, the gospel of mm -hmm. though he was found or though he was in the form of God, uh, it's not only a historical fact, mm -hmm. but it's also a cosmic reality that Paul is living into. And it's open to believers of all time, Paul included, obviously, mm -hmm. but believers of all time who are willing to suffer for each other and for the church, as they bear witness to and participate in the sufferings mm -hmm. of Christ. So, because of this, Paul is willing to suffer mm -hmm. for the church at Colossae, and, he, and in fact, he says he rejoices in it because he wants to fill up in his flesh and thus be a witness or be a martyr for the sake of the church and in union with the sufferings of Christ. And he believes that there will be vindication for this. Mm -hmm. He believes that somewhere down the road there's going to be exaltation on the other end of the humiliation of mm -hmm. suffering, right? And it's that attitude of participating and reiterating the sufferings of Christ as believers that makes up the theology of martyrdom. Mm -hmm. okay? mm -hmm. So that's, that's the theological part. So how has this doctrine been displayed in Christians in the past? How did it practically affect their lives and actions? That's more the historical side. We've talked a bit about the, mm -hmm. the, the, the theological side. It originates in Christ. Mm -hmm. It resonates in believers. Mm -hmm. um, how has how this played out in history? Well, there's, 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 just, there's, there's a lot of examples. It's, it's really overwhelming. Uh, mm -hmm. there's, there's the martyrdom of Stephen. That's, that's recorded in Acts. He's the first Christian witness, the first Christian mm -hmm. martyr we know of. There's 
uh, Polycarp, an early martyr, Justin Martyr, um, Pontinus, he's a bishop of Lyon, and mm -hmm. with him there's Blandia and, and some others jump ahead many thousand years, uh, several thousand. There's, there's Felix Mons, there's Dirk Willems in our own tradition, sure. um, all martyrs, but there's, there's many examples. The question of how has this been displayed, how has it worked out in life, well there I really have to zero in and focus just on one, mm -hmm. and that the figure that I think that I've, I've gotten, I've had the chance to do a little bit of work on there is, is Ignatius. Mm -hmm. He's the second century bishop, or a second century bishop of Antioch. We don't know exactly why he was targeted by the Romans. Uh, maybe because he's just representative of some vulnerable segment of society and Roman society. And he does have kind of questionable ties mm -hmm. to the imperial cult and to the social project that the Romans have going on. So whatever the case, mm -hmm. he's targeted and he's taken from Antioch with, with a cohort of soldiers and uh, he's, he's being taken to Rome and he's going to be executed there in the Colosseum. And on the way, he, he writes seven letters and we still have those letters. It's, it's mm -hmm. the basic record of what we know about, uh, what we know about Ignatius. Um, and from these letters, I mean, we know, we get to know, of course, about the, the piety of him. He's a really, really strongly pious, aged bishop. Mm -hmm. We get to know a little bit about some of the doctrinal concerns he has, but what's really interesting is you see, well, what, what does he, what's he doing with his body, with his martyrdom that he's presenting as a witness mm -hmm. for Christ? I defend, I defend some of what I'm going to say elsewhere, but I'm just going to assert it here, if that's for sure. But I think sure. some of the things that, some of the statements he's making like with his body, uh, for one, is a witness against the power of Rome. Mm -hmm. And I mean by that, not just the authority of it, but the, the way that Rome was, for one, it was so absolute in its demands of its citizens. And... Mm -hmm its use of coercive force to see to it that that absolute mm -hmm. commitment to the Roman imperial cult and to the, the Roman ideals for his citizens were actually brought about, okay? And he's, and he's mm -hmm. protesting that. Like I say, I'm just going to kind of barely assert that here. It's, it sure. gets really fascinating when you, you begin to understand how the Romans saw the Colosseum um, and how Ignatius, as he's coming to the Colosseum, he talks about it in these terms of the Eucharist, and he's going to go celebrate the Eucharist in the Colosseum. Mm -hmm. The bread is his body, and he's going to be offering it as this means of protest and, and martyrdom, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's what he's witnessing against, is the, the absolutized power that, that Rome has. Mm -hmm. uh, what's he witnessing for, though? It's clear that he's, he's not just witnessing for some kind of idea of like religious rights. Mm -hmm. We think of them today. Uh, instead, I'd argue that he has, he has some particular vision of what it means to be a human being mm -hmm. and that that has to do with the gospel as I've talked about, as Paul's talked about it. And where I get that from is this really interesting line he puts down as he's writing to the, the Roman church mm -hmm. and he says this, he says, Suffer me, my brethren, hinder me not from living hinder me not from living, do not wish me to die. Suffer me to receive the pure light when I shall have arrived there in Rome to be killed. I shall become a human being. Suffer me to follow the example of the passion of my God. So there's this, 
he doesn't want to live like in, he doesn't mm-hmm. want to biologically continue into life so he can actually live which is kind of a reversal <laughs> <laughs> and he wants to become a yeah. human being by voluntary voluntarily dying be- becoming a witness by becoming a martyr so it seems like you know in his in his body he's he's arguing through martyrdom mm-hmm. for a particular vision of what it means to be a human and, and he's saying mm-hmm. that it's actually in, in self emptying abasement that he's going to express humanity and become a human mm-hmm. being himself and he's going to do that in a public arena mm-hmm. uh, not quite literally wow so the, the second thing that i think he's witnessing for is he's witnessing against these totalizing claims of rome on him and his mm-hmm. his religious or his his, his allegiances his commitments He's witnessing against that, but he's also witnessing for a kind of vision for the the, the social structure of the church, Mm, how mm -hmm. the church is to conduct itself, how it's to order its power. Mm -hmm. And I think I'd just say that whereas the the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, Mm -hmm. could press members of society into certain social forms by demonstrating its power, uh, the corporate identity of the Pax Christi, the peace of Christ, is achieved through these innumerable reenactments over and over and over, both the ritual and the embodied reenactments of the Eucharist, right? Hmm. The practice of communion with the sufferings of Christ. So it's, it's these, in these reenactments of the gospel, of the Eucharist, of union with Christ, that it's the seat of the early Christians' martyrdom, but it also helps us to understand how and why they paid attention to the relationship between the rich and the poor, which the early church gave mm. a lot of attention to, mm-hmm. uh, their, their hospitality, how frequently they welcomed strangers into their midst, and, and also their, their, their emphasis on non-retaliation when mm-hmm. evil was committed against mm-hmm. them. They saw these as just reiterations of the Eucharist, tiny Eucharists, right, or of reiterations of the gospel of Christ coming, self-abasement, mm. his humiliation, and then his vindication. Mm-hmm. So basically, um, Ignatius, this, this early Christian martyr, he embodied with his life and with his martyrdom a rejection of the totalizing power of Rome, and he saw his witness as participation in the life of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, his practice of the Eucharist and his concern for unity and finally his his concern for hospitality they all flow out of that first or that primary commitment to mm-hmm. his union with Christ and the practice of the Eucharist okay so covering a lot of ground really quickly there, there's one figure <laughs> I could talk about I could talk about him for a very long time yeah 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 it's so clearly you've done a fair amount of study on that particular case yeah yeah it's 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 a it's an incredible encounter it, it, if you we're only now beginning, I think, to really appreciate some mm-hmm. of the depth of what you can even say like, ethically about a character like Ignatius, mm-hmm. because he's not, he's not so interested in, in the discursive or theoretical. He's going to Rome, he's going to offer himself, and he talks about that, but he talks about himself, himself in ways that just raise a lot of questions. So then one question I'd have is, does this doctrine only apply when being persecuted or attacked, or is this something that has much broader elements? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it becomes most obvious. You know, martyrdom mm-hmm. is something like, when it's when it's physical martyrdom. It's it's clear. It's 
it's it's out there. It's public. It's in an arena. It's in a public setting, and that's mm-hmm. that's the whole point. Of what martyrdom means is a spectacle, um, and it's usually it's 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 a reversal. You know, it's the powers trying to demonstrate and exploit the vulnerability mm-hmm. of say a, a Christian population, and often it, it kind of makes that reversal. But I think because of how how stark martyrdom is as a public spectacle. Um, and because it, the way it speaks to the most extreme and, and vulnerable circumstances that we as Christians could face, um, I, I think absolutely yes. A theology mm. of martyrdom has much broader applications, and, and I think really because of how uh, because of how well it speaks to not just the really extreme circumstances we face, but also to the really everyday encounters we face. It just absolutely begs to be expressed and worked out in all aspects of life. Can you can you give a practical everyday life example of how uh-huh. something like this applies? Uh huh. Yeah. But if if you source a theology of martyrdom back in the self-emptying, self-giving life of Christ, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. that does speak to the kind of harmlessness or vulnerability of somebody who's in the situation of like physically being killed for their mm. faith, but. I mean, you just, you just imagine the incredible number of situations you have in everyday encounters to demonstrate self-emptying, self-giving love. Um, yeah. To be concrete, you know, it's, it's as easy as oh, if, you're, if you're doing, you know, 3 a.m. parenting <laughs> and you're, you're trying to, to, re- to relate to this child in a, in, a, in a constructive way, which can be really, really difficult sometimes. Like, that's an mm. opportunity. To, to work within yeah. the context of a theology of martyrdom. It's, it, it, it influences how we think about the relationships that are most mm-hmm. intimate to us, our friends, our spouses. Um, a little bit more extreme, maybe, it, it could influence how we think about our practice of law, mm. um, how, we're, how we're seeking to get advantage, or whether we're going mm-hmm. to actually orient ourselves in a way that's that's not going to be retaliating, right? Yeah. So anytime there's potential for retaliation or for advantage, which is practically every day, um, the theology of martyrdom is going to influence how we think about that. So how do you see Anabaptists living this out or maybe not living this out? I mean, mm-hmm. especially given this, the situation where we don't have opportunities like being thrown to the lions yeah. like they did in other parts of church history. Um, yeah, how, how is this working out for us now? How does this specifically apply to the Anabaptist uh-huh. people? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, martyrdom is, is a central part of, I think, our historical memory as mm-hmm. Anabaptists. And um, one of the, the difficulties we've had, it's, it's part of our past, like the, the physical martyrdom, the drowning mm-hmm. of Felix Montano, on, on on through. But one of the difficulties we've had as Anabaptists to face, and it's not an insurmountable one, but it's a difficulty, is translating that attitude of vulnerability mm-hmm. and defenselessness that leads to physical martyrdom into an ethic that's suited for just like everyday life, a normative ethic. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, it's when, you know, when, when, the, when the stakes are so extreme, I think we found that we're willing to make commitments and make difficult choices, but when the outside pressure is taken away, you have to be more creative. Mm-hmm. You have to apply those same general kind of operating perspectives or principles into different contexts, and that that doesn't just happen. Mm-hmm. That doesn't just happen uh, 
without some intention. Um, so how do we live it out? Well, I do think there have been, there have been translations from that, that really extreme situation into the more everyday ethic. You'd see mm -hmm. it in things like the, uh, the Anabaptist commitment to forgiveness and non-retaliation. Um, coming from that is, is this refusal to go to war, non-resistance. Um, mm -hmm. There's within the communities the idea of Galassenheit or yieldedness yeah. starts to really emerge and be strengthened in the years following persecution winding down. So you see that, mm -hmm. that transformation beginning to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, there's responsiveness to needs globally and locally when there's when this humanitarian crisis. There's 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 a strong sense in Anabaptist circles that there ought to be a response. It's a costly choice. Yeah. Um, but I think that has something to do with the, the theology of martyrdom. It links back to associating with mm -hmm. the sufferings of Christ. Um, commitment to marriage might be one of those. Um, hmm. Interesting. That kind of come thick or thin, come the real difficulties mm -hmm. that come in marriage. Uh, there's, a, there's a commitment to seeing that through, whether or not that originates in a, you know, an ethic of martyrdom. I, I, I don't know, but um, <laughs> sure. I think you could make the argument. Mm -hmm. Maybe most generally, there's, there is a sense in which there's just a, a commitment to do the hard thing. And mm. a, a general, of course I'm, I'm generalizing here, but a general willingness to engage difficulty that comes with doing the right or the good thing mm -hmm. um, without mm -hmm. a lot of complaining. Um, mm. So they, 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 there's some ways in which I think contemporary Anabaptists are, are seeking to work out of the theology of martyrdom. Uh, the other half of the question, like, well, is there any failure in this? Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> of course sure. it's Basically, whatever, whatever we fail to live our lives, or when we fail to allow our lives to be ordered in a Christiform or cruciform way of life, um, and in a voluntary way, that's, mm -hmm. that's a failure to, to really inherit a theology of martyrdom that's that's I think part of our tradition and there's lots of opportunities to do that like clearly there's lots of opportunities to fail at inheriting that very well and there's there's plenty of opportunities to go ahead and, and creatively access a, the, a theology of martyrdom in everyday life so the the whole theme or concept of cross-bearing mm -hmm. in Anabaptism I, you know I think we've all heard of that in different forms I'm curious who else what other examples can you give of Anabaptists who have talked about this or taught this or hmm. lived this out in a specific way that they've done that, but also that is applicable to us today? So people other than Mennonites who've talked about uh, either cross-bearing or a theology mm. of suffering, theology of martyrdom, theology of the cross. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Um, we definitely don't have a corner on that as Anabaptists. There's been a lot of... There's been a lot <laughs> sure. of people who've given themselves to talking about what a theology of the cross or a theology of martyrdom actually means. And there, I'm just going ahead and jumping to Luther. I might as well say something about it a while. Sure. Uh, Luther talks about the theology of, of the cross and he makes a distinction between the theologians of the cross and the theologians of glory. Um, okay, interesting. Theologians of glory, they take as their starting point uh, human capacity for things like reason, their use of mm. their personal perceptions 
and theologians of glory use these to just increase their knowledge of the world and get by with the least amount of suffering possible. Um, theologians of the cross, Luther says, they take as their starting place only the revelation of God in Christ. Mm. And they'll take as their starting point God's revelation. And because what we know about God is his revelation through Christ and his own self-emptying, mm. uh, that's enough to learn about him. And it's enough to know what goodness actually looks like when we behold Christ. So a theology of glory deals with suffering and cross-bearing by trying to find a way around it. You know, maybe try the power of positive thinking. Um, just hope sure. for better days ahead and try to kind of minimize the pain. Because if you just stick to it, eventually you come to a better time. And that's what you're really here for, right? Yeah. Whereas a, a theologian of the cross calls suffering what it is. Mm. It identifies it and identifies with the suffering because at the other end of the suffering, there's hope, right? And there's vindication because of the work of Christ and because of his own faith in the completed work of Christ. So that's, mm -hmm. that's the theologian of the cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, he says at the beginning of his uh, ethics, right at, the very, right at the very start of it, he says, when Christ bids a man, he bids him come and die. <laughs> that sounds like cross-bearing. Yeah. Um, he, just a little bit further, and he identifies four stations on the way to freedom. Starts with discipline. Mm -hmm. It moves to action, mm -hmm. and then suffering, and then death. Okay, this mm -hmm. is not just your traditional ethic. <laughs> you mm -hmm. realize when you were starting to read Bonhoeffer. Yeah. That's um, a movement toward the theology of the cross. That's what's at the center of it. Mm -hmm. There's... Um, Moltmann, he's a kind of controversial German theologian. He made his entire career, his entire thinking life, really circled around Christ's cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he thinks that we're only capable of loving other people insofar as we are willing to open ourselves to the possibility that we're going to suffer on account of that love. Yeah. Or on account of being affected by other people. Mm -hmm. So he says that it's only by self-emptying encounter with others that we can ever hope to achieve love and that we can ever only hope to even know who we are as individuals, which is paradoxical. It's only by self-emptying encounter that we encounter other people in that we can never even hope to understand who we are. There's, there's many more. I think just it's just worth noticing maybe that uh, more attention is being given to an ethic or a mm. theology of martyrdom as it becomes increasingly apparent that we're living in a post-Christian world. So what, in your opinion, would be the outcome of if Christians really started living out this theology in a practical, day-to-day, -day, you know, in shoe leather? What would that mm. look like? Mm -hmm. What would it look like to live out of a theology of martyrdom? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> Big question. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think I'll just go in maybe two dimensions. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, I think if, if as we begin to live into the identity of Christ and begin to live out of a theology of martyrdom, uh, I think Christians become more stable mm -hmm. and they also become more missional. Okay. 
something of a dialectic there that I'm deliberately putting out that those two main it seem like they're in tension with each other and that's okay. Um, they become more stable. Christians become more stable as they live out of a theology of martyrdom because it, it engages us with our present circumstances and doesn't just allow them to kind of squirt out around them and try to find some other place where we think we'll be happy. Mm -hmm. um, I mean by that that I think Christians would engage their marriages, their churches, their work relationships, uh, all of this with, with some indifference to the personal benefit that they're going to get. Yeah. And uh, to, 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 to be a martyr, to be living within a theology of martyrdom is to realize that voluntary self-offering of ourselves, our resources, that's just the way, at some fundamental level, that's just the way the world actually operates. And yeah. those who live into that reality, those are the people who are actually seeing the world rightly. And everybody who lives outside of that reality is seeing the world upside down. Okay? Uh -huh. Which is really kind of sure. paradoxical and hard to get a hold sure. of. Um, but I think we'd see more of that. And that, and that, 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 that ability to see the world rightly mm -hmm. gives you enormous stability. I mean, it gives you a kind of a, mm. uh, a, it gives you a, an indifference to what's going to be um, benefiting myself and how I'm going to be furthering mm -hmm. my own agenda there. And uh, when, when a person makes those sorts of commitments and lives out of that kind of reality, it clears out a lot of overhead and really stabilizes us. So that's the first part. I think the, the first dimension is stability. The second dimension is mission. Mm -hmm. It's going to change how we think about, how we conduct mission, and how willing we are to even to go into mission. So I think um, just practically, as, as Christians think about a theology of martyrdom, and they engage in mission as they, as they go outward and, and witness for Christ and against competing powers, which would take mm -hmm. us away from Christ, or as a witness against competing powers who are, who are idolatrous to our, to our commitment to Christ. Um, it's first of all going to influence how we go about that mission, and we're going to be, I think, defenseless and harmless. Okay. Hmm. I think that Christians who live out of the theology of martyrdom are going to be defenseless and harmless as they, as they go about their, their missional work. Uh, I, there's a lot of dimensions to that. We can't really work them out right now. Mm -hmm. um, but I think also, and, and here I, I put myself out just a little bit, but I think that there would be secondary value given to strategy. And, and here I have to immediately clarify what I mean okay. by that because... Uh, the strategy that I'm saying would be given secondary values, the kind of strategy that tries to isolate us from discomfort and suffering, mm. because those things really are needed for us to grow in Christ, and they're, they're, they're going to happen. So strategy is used as a way of cutting us out of the arc of suffering and just saying we can do God's work, but without the suffering. Mm. Um, that kind of strategy has to be called into question within a theology of martyrdom. So there's no room, you hear me right, you know, there's no yeah. room for shoddiness uh, if we take seriously a, a theology of martyrdom and put strategy in the second place. It's just a realization that, that, that suffering is inevitable as we go about God's mission. And when we encounter it, we have the opportunity to participate mm -hmm. in the sufferings of Christ. And that's, 
actually like with Paul, that's a glory. It's mm. not something that needs to be avoided. So we can live mm. into those, mm. and uh, and and in some some paradoxical ways, many times that's that's how the kingdom is actually brought about, not only by our strategies. That's all the questions I had. Is there anything else you'd like to share? That's all I have to. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Kyle, for your time and also the amount of research that you've put into this, so that you're able to share that with others. I think that's really uh, that's really valuable. information about Anabaptist Perspectives, to read our blog, to donate, and to see videos of the conversations you hear on this podcast, visit anabaptistperspectives.org. We love to hear from our audience, so leave your feedback in the comments for this podcast, or send us a message through our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Anabaptist Perspectives.